That is why there is so much ice. It freezes because there is not much sunlight at the outer perimeters of flat Earth. The ice has always melted at a constant rate, and this has been used recently to fuel the climate change hoax by the satanic cabal. This central vortex at the North Pole would also suggest the possible existence of the biblical great deep and offer some clues to the existence of water above the firmament, all of which are outside of our perceptions grasp and have been hidden from us. As absurd as this constant recycling of water sounds, the same process is happening right now inside of your body and never stops. Blood is pumped from the body into the right atrium and then is drawn up into the more central right valve to the lungs, which oxygenates the blood and pumps it into the left atrium at the heart's periphery, which is then drawn up into the central left valve back into the body. Speaking of the stars in the firmament, Enoch said that we shall err and take them to be gods. All planets in the fake solar system are named after false gods, such as Mars, Saturn, and Mercury. All of them apart from Earth. Earth is an interesting word, one of its kind. It is an anagram of heart. Look at the electromagnetic field of the human heart. It is a toroid. Look at the apple. It is the same shape as the toroid. What fruit did Satan tempt Eve with? in the garden, the center of the earth, hidden in plain sight, as above, so below, the microcosm and the macrocosm. What lies inside of earth at this central vortex, who knows? But it could explain the phenomena of the auroras at the poles. Perhaps the mysterious green light is atmospheric light coming from inner earth, or the light emitted at the junction between realms. The word aurora borealis is very similar to the word ouroboros the serpent eating its own tail. A satanic symbol we see used over and over again. Many have speculated that the Ouroboros symbolizes the ice ring at Antarctica. Oro 
comes from the ancient Greek meaning for tail, and boros comes from the ancient Greek meaning for swallow. Boros is also very similar linguistically to Boreas, god of the north wind. The Ouroboros is also present in the Norse cosmology, circling the center. The Bible referred to it as Leviathan, a creature with no mate. Its tail placed inside of its mouth. It signifies how the North Pole and the Antarctic ice ring meet in the continual, infinite recycling of the oceans, caused by the flow of energy from a toroidal electromagnetic field. It also symbolizes the continual dance between good and evil. The good being the Arctic North Pole and the evil being Antarctica. The ant prefix of Antarctica is precisely the same prefix used to signify opposition and being against. The Arctic is Christ, and Antarctica is the Antichrist. So many of the satanic elite are obsessed with Antarctica. In the mythologies, it is only the pure of heart that can enter the North Pole Center, Hyperborea, the Emerald City. The Garden of Eden, and we see this motif play out over and over again in their satanic mocking of our ignorance, while they continually lead us further and further away from knowing the truth, keeping us rooted to giving our energy to their satanic. Matrix. The recent BFG movie shows the characters jumping into another realm at a center with a giant tree. Notice the aurora. Stephen King's The Dark Tower series places the magnetic Mount Maru, the Rupes Negra, in the center. Notice the familiar map and the Arthur Rose. Look at a clip from the film. It's a map. My father showed me a, a map like this once. Inside the circle is your world and my world. Many others, no one knows how many. The dark tower stands in the center of all things, and it stood there from the beginning of time.
Food sends out powerful energy. Interestingly, Stephen King also wrote another novel about life under the dome. Philip Pullman wrote a children's novel called The Northern Lights, in which the protagonist enters another realm through the aurora. Jules Verne's journey to the center of the earth sees its protagonists enter inner earth in the north, just beyond Iceland. We have the wandering mountain in the never-ending story. Notice the rainbow. Even the production company Paramount references this in its logo. Notice the dome stars above the Paramount, the Mount Maru, Mount Zion. We see reference to flat earth and the tree of life, Mount Maru, hidden in plain sight everywhere. George Bush International Airport, the flat earth map on the ground with a huge tree of life in the center, reaching up to the dome above. Darling Gardens in Sydney, Australia, the flat earth map again with the Antarctic ice ring and the magnetic mountain in the center. Even the central United Nations meeting room displays this imagery. Notice the starred dome above and the grand gold pillar in the center. What about flights? Wouldn't pilots have noticed if there were a huge vortex at the center of the earth? Well, perhaps if they actually flew over the region. Flights are restricted, we are told, because it is too cold to fly over the Arctic and Antarctic regions. They tell us they have the technology to send people out into cold space, but not to cross the polar zones. In fact, a closer look at flight paths more generally exposes their heliocentric lie. On a globe Earth, South Africa to Australia should be a straight path over the Indian Ocean. They could even refuel at Madagascar if necessary. But no such flight exists. They all stop off at Dubai, Hong Kong, or Malaysia. A huge detour that makes no sense on a globe, but makes complete sense when looking at a flat earth map. It's the direct flight path on flat earth. We are running out of time. 
it is important to acknowledge the remaining and resistant beauty of our world despite the vast amount of barbaric quarrying. It is undeniable that our flat earth quarry retains aspects of beauty. Sometimes so powerful, it is described by humans as breathtaking. Although we are a species born out of the barbaric behavior of those who destroyed the earth, carbon-12 is not the entirety of our biological design. Like the land, we retain elements of the good which can be traced back to divine creation, or what is called God. Whether you view God as a being, vibration and magnetism itself, or something else does not matter. God is the source, the intelligence that designs and creates. Hexagonal efficiency is just one geometric design found in living organic matter. There is a sequence and ratio underpinning all geometric shapes, life and matter itself. These are the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio. The Fibonacci sequence the mathematical sequence of adding the last two numbers that came before, starting with one. As the sequence continues, a constant ratio of one to 1.6 appears. This is called the golden ratio and continues indefinitely. To imagine what a 1 to 1.6 ratio looks like, compare it to a 1 to 1 ratio. Any rectangle with any two of the numbers of this Fibonacci sequence forms what is known as the golden rectangle. A perfect rectangle. This rectangle can be broken down into squares, the size of the next Fibonacci numbers. Similarly, if you construct the rectangle with the 1 to 1.6 ratio and begin to make incremental golden ratio points within that, you end up with the same results as the Fibonacci sequence. If you divide each with an arc, then the pattern begins to take shape. We see Fibonacci's spiral, the spiral in and of itself. A spiral spiraling out at the sequential ratio of 1 to 1.6. Fibonacci's spiral is literally found everywhere in the natural world, on both a microcosmic level and a macrocosmic level.
It is the blueprint of all creation. It is not a coincidence that the entire education system pretty much ignores the golden ratio and golden spiral. We are not taught about this because the inevitable conclusion of understanding the omnipresence of this ratio is to acknowledge intelligent design and creation. It is the fingerprint of God. When viewed from above, the toroid takes on the shape of a spiral. Your brainwashing and programming has to have such a powerful grip over you if you think for one second our flat earth itself would not take on the same ratio and patterning. A golden spiral concentrating into a central vortex at the North Pole. Do you see how they have taken the fingerprint of God, the spiral, and corrupted it through the most evil act that can be committed? The rape, torture, and murder of a child and drinking its blood. How to continue after discovering such evil exists and the deceptions cast upon humanity? What to do when things fall apart? When down becomes up and up is now down? When those you trusted the most deceived you and let you down? When the storm comes? Center yourself, return to the center, and not in the way they tell you. There is a reason the satanic cabal pushes things like meditation and want you to participate in blind positivity. There is a reason that most organizations now subscribe to this narrative and ask you to attend to your well-being. They want you to accept that reality is stressful and full of corruption, to normalize it and tell you the antidote is forced relaxation, to switch off and ignore and forced positivity, which in reality is just to ignore the matter at hand and replace it with delusional positive thoughts. In other words, to turn a blind eye. The eye is a microcosm of flat earth itself with the pupil at the center giving you sight. Center yourself, but not through their methods. There is only one way to achieve centrality and stillness. The eye of the storm, immutable and still while all around it energetic rage.
the tree trunk, steadfast as the wind rattles its branches. The truth is objective. It cannot move, cannot bend, cannot fall apart. It is positively charged. It stands up to any counter-argument. And because of this, the truth is pure and is fixed. The fixed center of being. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And knowing the world we live in, the journey to the center is going to be the journey of a lifetime. It's here. The end of the rabbit hole. The end of our small journey. There is so much we did not get to cover. But I hope you will not forget over time and keep on searching. Did I accomplish what I set out to achieve? Am I wiser? Do I know more? Perhaps a little, but the more truth I discovered, the less I truly know. The truth humbles and puts me in my place, but it is not a place of dislocation that believing in the iron soft heliocentric model of nothingness produces in an individual. You probably want to ask, if I now believe in God. If you need to ask that question, then you haven't been paying attention. I didn't tell you before because I knew I wouldn't need to. But this isn't really an ending for me or for yourself. For I know that something in you, viewer, has forever changed. Whether it's your entire perspective of the earth or just a small fraction of something that may nag at you during the late nights when sleep doesn't come. This isn't goodbye and this is not an exit. It's actually the beginning. You're not really leaving the rabbit hole. You cannot leave the rabbit hole now. You've seen too much. The road doesn't end here. It's just a brief pause at the crossroads of another entrance to another rabbit hole. The journey of a lifetime. And who knows where it will lead you, viewer. But let's hope it's closer to the center. Once you are awake, it is almost impossible to fall back to sleep again. Once you discover that the earth is not a spinning globe, but a flat and stationary plane with a firmament above it, everything changes. The trusted voices and satanic scientific priests who once shaped our reality and understanding of the world 
are no longer reliable. Our first-hand experience of the Earth as a stationary realm is at odds with their fabricated narrative of space and spinning planets. The scarring of our land and the barbaric mining of Earth's once majestic giant trees is at odds with the history books and geological narrative. And the awaker left wondering, what on Earth happened? If they've lied about the Earth, space, and the destruction of our flat realm, then how can we trust the official mainstream historical narrative? The historical narrative, like the heliocentric model, does not make sense. It doesn't add up. And all it takes is a closer examination and their lies which have governed our understanding of history and the world since our birth begin to fall apart. Let's stir the mind with a few contemplations. We are told that the first true power tool was invented in 1895 when a German company combined an electric motor with a manual drill. The drill weighed 16 and a half pounds and required multiple operators. It wasn't until 1957 that a company called Bosch began designing power tools in bulk that were both economical and powerful. So then how did our historical ancestors, a more primitive, underdeveloped people, design and build some of the structures we encounter? What about all the gigantic monolithic stones we encounter that have been cut with such precision? Ask yourself, could you repeat this today with the arsenal of equipment we have at our disposal? And what about the magnificent ancient step wells of the East? Step wells, we are told, were multi-storied wells built by our primitive ancestors as ways to preserve the water supply during droughts. But look at the intricacy and complexity of these structures. Look at the glory and the finesse. Look at the geometric precision. All dug out and crafted from using hand tools. Yeah, right. What about the gigantic canal networks we find all over the world? The Erie Canal in America was allegedly built between 1817 and 1825. There were no civil engineers in America at this time. The people responsible for planning construction were novices, we are told. The canal is 12 meters wide and 4 meters deep. The Erie Canal spans 363 miles. But this was not just a case of digging each day for the Irish immigrants and their oxen companions. They had to fell hundreds of trees as they passed through the virgin forest. They had to build complicated aqueducts and locks and they had to pass through the Niagara Escarpment, an 80-foot-high wall of hard limestone. They had to use black powder to blast through this 
we are told, as dynamite had yet to be invented. The canal spans 363 miles and was constructed over an eight-year period. This means that on average, one mile was completed every eight days. What a record, especially since those responsible were novices and power tools and dynamite were yet to be invented. I can tell you now, the so-called early settlers of the Americas did not build these canal systems. And what of the grand and magnificent castles scattered across our realm? Did you know that most were designed and constructed without plumbing systems and methods to heat rooms properly? Hmm. The royal and the elites of the past were content without having the accessible necessities of survival just as long as they could live within the grand and the glorious. While the peasants, in their modest abodes, enjoyed warmth throughout the long dark winters? I don't think so. And of course, there is the impossibility of the Great Giza Pyramid Complex. The pyramids, we are told, were constructed somewhere around 2500 BC. The Great Pyramid itself consists of 2.3 million blocks of limestone and granite, and its overall structure weighs 6 million tons. The largest granite stones weigh between 20 and 80 tons each. 20 tons is 20,000 kilograms. These blocks were carved from quarries with copper chisels and allegedly transported from 800 kilometers away. The so-called experts can only theorize that a vast amount of slave labor was required. Being gullible and falling for the official narrative of slave labor is one thing, but can someone please explain how the air shafts of the Great Pyramid align so neatly with the circumpolar stars. And then there is the curious case of star forts, or what the official liars of the world call bastion forts. Developed in the late 15th and early 16th century, these forts, we are told, were designed during an era of gunpowder and the cannon. The geometric design offered a nation's military protection against blind spots during conflict. Of course they did. We all know that the best protection during war is to design a fort with such precise geometric patterning. Has any real historian ever stopped to think just how perfect the geometry is here? Our primitive ancestors did not have the technology to view structures from above, but they still managed to achieve this? Give me strength. There is no way. We could not produce such perfect geometry on this scale today. We've been fooled once again. We have been indoctrinated with a false historical narrative and timeline. And 
Like the silly, heliocentric model, all it takes is a closer look at this narrative and things soon start to fall apart and the lies become so blatantly evident. Because of their satanic lies, piecing together an accurate, honest historical timeline has become an impossible Rubik's Cube. The official narrative, a Pandora's box, only offering us tiny clues, half-truths and deceptions. The stitchings of our true historical timeline have been loosened. The contents are raised and muddled before we were even born into this world. And herein lies the problem. How to know where you are going if you don't know where you are in the first place. But you see, awakening is truly a gift. Once awake, we learn that we've always had the answers right in front of us. We've always had more than we know. But we had to regain our sight first before things started falling into place. Before things started to make a little more sense. And here we are again, viewer, at the precipice of another great journey. What if I told you that before us there existed a civilization that was responsible for the most advanced technology ever developed? And that it was their understanding of the workings of our flat realm that was key to their innovation. And what if I told you that it is highly likely that our true history as a people only begun just over 200 years ago? Would you think of me as mad once again? Do I sound as preposterous as when I first told you that the earth is flat? Perhaps. And that's why I need to show you. What I hope to show you is one of the greatest cover-ups of all time. It is on par with the heliocentric lie in its enormity and the impact it has upon humanity. And, as I will try to show you, it is inextricable from the true nature of our flat realm Earth. And you cannot understand one without understanding the other. We cannot waste time, for we must journey in search of lost time. At its heart, this is a story about deception. It is also a story of endings and beginnings, of death and rebirth. And please bear with me. Due to the deceptions and falsities underpinning our historical narrative, this story cannot be told in a linear fashion. We need to go back and forth in time to really draw out something that brings us a little closer to the truth. It is also imperative to understand that like much contemporary science, history as a discipline was corrupted a long time ago. At its most innocent, a lot of established historical narrative is guesswork. But at its worst, it is a set of lies agreed upon, as the so-called Napoleon put it so succinctly. We are going to be digging in the dark, 
No historian will be there to help us. We are alone in this journey. Our journey is a hunt for things buried in plain sight. And things may become a little uncomfortable at times, but it is necessary. We have been living a comfortable life for far too long now. Come on, jump in and put your seatbelt on. For to understand our place in the world, we need to do the unthinkable. It's time for us to take a journey back to the future. Our journey begins in the unlikeliest of places. 19th century St. Petersburg, at the entrance to St. Isaac's Cathedral. The city cold, the early morning mists dissipating with the approach of the sun, and our boots caked in mud. The year is 1860, and while St. Petersburg stands regal and proud, its inhabitants are nowhere to be found. It is quiet, too quiet. The population of St. Petersburg in the 1860s was, we are told, roughly 500,000 people. And yet there is not a soul in sight. Where is everybody? shadow of Alexander Column gives us a clue as to the time of the sun's journey above this region. Long shadows only occur during morning or evening. It must be morning, but it appears that no one has surfaced yet. If we travel 400 miles across to Moscow, we see the same thing. Empty, quiet streets. In 1860, Moscow shared a similar population with St. Petersburg, roughly 500,000 citizens. But again, where is everybody? What about the rest of the world during this time period? Edinburgh. Scotland, 1840s. Copenhagen, Denmark, 1840s. Dresden, Germany, 1860s. in Brazil, 1860s. Toronto, Canada, 1860s. Athens in Greece, 1860s.
and then London. Finally, people. What about Paris? People, life. The first photograph, we are told, was created in 1822. The art of photography relies on methods of juxtaposition, of comparison and contrast to deliver its message and sentiment. In these old photographs, we do not find the same deliberate techniques of juxtaposition that contemporary photographers craft into their art, but rather we find natural contrasts that are so important and central to navigating through our deceptive history. Contrast is a phenomenon, natural or artificial, in which meaning is generated and conveyed through the comparison of two opposing elements. When looking at 1860s Russia, there is an immediate contrast between the lack of population and the sheer size of these cities. Even in the 19th century, both Moscow and St. Petersburg are enormous. The infrastructure found in the photographs could hold a population well into the millions. Why are the cities so vast if the population was only 500,000 in each? Furthermore, the official narrative gives us a population that increases in a linear fashion from 1764. Many of the buildings we see here were built years before the photograph was taken. Did the Russians just plan well in advance? But it's when the population is introduced into these photographs that a new contrast emerges that is staggering. That is, between the people and the environment itself. It may be the reduced population numbers or it may be the monochromatic starkness of the black and white images, but they present to us something that we've lived amongst our entire lives and never paid any mind to. That is, the enormity and impossibility of the architecture. As we engage with the industry and act of tourism, we journey from place to place and observe, taking it all in, learning, hearing, and being told what we are looking at and how it came to be. And standing in front of a structure like the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, we might even exclaim, wow, how did they do this? But the moment, inextricably wrapped up in the busyness of the scene, perhaps prevents us from really asking that question with sincerity. Standing in front of a structure like the Arc de Triomphe, 
while the crowd frantically takes pictures on their smartphones, makes it all a reality. And we conclude before being shoved away by new tourists. Well, they had to have done it somehow because I'm here and looking at it. During our indoctrination of school, we are seldom shown old photographs of the grand cities scattered around our flat realm. And perhaps for good reason. Because when we marinate on images like this and are presented with the visual evidence of a very primitive Victorian people dotted around like grasshoppers within the shadows of the most magnificent, grandiose, brilliant architecture a human could ever imagine, we begin to have doubts. Indeed, how did they build this? The Arc de Triomphe is made from 36,695 cube meters of limestone and weighs 95,407 tons or just over 95 million kilograms. They tell us it took 12 years to build the giant arch in two different periods between 1806 to 1814 and between 1832 to 1836. How did they transport this amount of limestone with the same horse and carts that we see in the photographs? Look closer at the four sculptures that adorn each of its sides. Look at the intricacy of the sculptures and the patterning of the ornamentation that frames the arch. Each section is perfectly repeated without any deviation or inconsistency. The first true power tool was not invented until 60 years after this arch was completed. They tell us this was crafted by hand is that even possible? And then there is the ceiling of the arch. Immaculate, 3D sculpted roses. Perfect in their geometric symmetry. The nuance of the detail and finesse of each petal and cross-section borders is overwhelming. Look at the rest of Paris during this time. Again, a plethora of unbelievable, gigantic, and magnificent structures. The city's infrastructure, glorious, and the people and their means of transport primitive, unsophisticated, and seeming not at all developed to the point of producing a city like this. The roads are improperly paved and uneven. They are dirty and muddy. We also see buildings during this period in which the architecture aligns with the inhabitants. Buildings of misshapen proportions, less developed and refined, charming in their own way, but coarse in their use of wood and plaster. 
This is exactly the type of architecture we expect of a generation of horse and cart. A generation ignorant to the discoveries in technology that would follow in the years to come. Furthermore, at the time of this photograph, the arch is roughly 40 years old since its completion. Yet can you see how worn some of the parts of the structure are? We see weathering on the stone that suggests the arch is much older. As we approach the late 19th century, we see that the people of Moscow have finally decided to leave their homes and venture out into the streets. The infamous Red Square, now bustling with life. St. Basil's Cathedral and the Spaskaya Tower dominate the frame of the square. The construction of St. Basil's Cathedral began in 1555 and was completed in 1561, a mere six years. It suffered a huge fire in 1737 and underwent restoration over a 20-year period. But look at it. What a structure. Almost unreal and like no other. It is composed of thousands of red bricks and tin sheet metal that has been shaped into the distinctive onion domes we see. Look closer at the intricacy of the domes. How did they bend metal to achieve such precision and perfection in the 18th century? And again, if they had the skills and dedication to build a wonder such as this, then why are the conditions of the road so poor and covered in mud? We see these incredible structures and buildings everywhere in 19th century photography. We have the wondrous Crystal Palace of London, a monstrous structure with the greatest area of glass ever seen in a building and all constructed before England had automatic glass manufacturing. We have Westminster Abbey and Parliament. We have the old Euston Arch constructed out of pure sandstone in 1837 and streets unpaved and full of mud why did these people not prioritize the streets they walked upon? The Frauenkirche, the domed masterpiece of Dresden, Germany. Its intricate and opulent splendor in direct contrast with the beat-up wagons and horse-pulled carts of the people below, a people dependent on the bare necessities. A people completely dwarfed by its size and majesty. The Library of Parliament in Ottawa, Canada, built over a period of 17 years. The first major settlers arrived in 1800, and at the time of construction, the city's population was under 20,000. Would a grand, glorious library really be a priority for settlers? 
Why does the building look like it's been cropped out of Europe and pasted into Canada? Even at the turn of the century, 40 years before Bosch economized the power tool, we have the old Penn Station in New York. Look at the size of this. Completely mind-blowing proportions. As we can see here in the photograph, each octagonal sculpted pattern on the arched dome ceiling is larger than one individual human. Look at the gigantic columns and detailed asanthus leaves decorating the tops of each pillar. They tell us this station took six years to build. Six whole years. Yeah, right. Why are we so gullible? Even with our access to modern power tools, printable construction pieces, and crane technology, we could not reproduce this today. And more importantly, we don't reproduce this type of architecture today. The official liars of our world have an umbrella term for this type of architecture that we see in North America. They call it historism. Historism is a term coined to describe a style of architecture that is revival in nature. Or, in other words, copies the style of a... Power surges and lightning bolts can cause damage to your electronic devices. A EMP attack can fry everything, leaving everyone looking like the Flintstones. But don't let that happen. Go to EMPShield.com and enter KHNC in the promo code box. EMP Shield can keep you secure and running when no one else can. American-made electronic protection. Again, put KHNC in the promo box. EMPShield.com calling you has the coronavirus the person calling you is infected with the coronavirus do not pick up the virus is airborne and will travel through the ether wirelessly from phone to phone thus infecting your phone save yourself and others around you you will die if you answer this call do not pick up or you will be infected with the coronavirus you're listening to the roar of the rockies kh